to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. While you're turning, uh, while you're getting your Bibles out, I just want to say a word about uh, some events today. Uh, don't forget that we have a men's soccer game, I think, at 3 today against University of California at San Diego. And then this evening, uh, our gals volleyball team is playing Southern California College, which is a uh, district uh, uh, contest. So hopefully you'll be in attendance. Our team's really had a great weekend, and you come out and support them, uh, come out and support them this evening. What I want to do this morning is I want to kind of... Uh, carry over the theme that Dr. MacArthur uh, developed so well for us last week, which is this whole issue of fellowship. And if you recall, he began by giving you a definition of fellowship, which was the sharing in the realities of spiritual life. Fellowship is sharing in the realities of spiritual life. Now, one of the problems that you always have, especially when you're dealing with doctrine in the New Testament, uh, is simply the fact that doctrine is abstract. Okay, it's a concept. It's kind of like the Declaration of Independence. You know, the Declaration of Independence tells us that we have been given certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what in the world does that mean once you have said it? And so once again, when doctrine is given in the New Testament, many times it's given in the abstract. And so the issue then for us is simply this. How does it translate into the realities of life? That is, how does fellowship really translate into the realities of life. And, and once again, the Bible is so complete in these areas. And many times, you can get the greatest examples of abstract doctrine in the New Testament fleshed out for you in the lives of people in the Old Testament. Now let me tell you this. The tendency is when you're studying the Old Testament, when you're studying the lives of particular saints of the Old Testament, the tendency is, is to kind of read it like a book or kind of look at it like a mo movie or motion picture. But what you've got to remember is that when you're reading about a saint in the Old Testament, you are literally reading about flesh and blood issues. You are really studying reality. And therefore, it is very important as to how you approach your study of the Old Testament. Now remember last Monday, Dr. MacArthur's four, first point concerning fellowship was simply this, that the basis of fellowship is salvation. All right? The basis of fellowship is salvation. And therefore, the goal of preaching the gospel is to create fellowship. He went on to say that once saved, once you're saved, you don't go in and out of fellowship. Okay? He gave us that great quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, that Christian fellowship is an ideal to be is not an ideal to be achieved but a reality to be experienced not an ideal to be achieved but a reality to be experienced and what i want to do this morning is i want to take a very unlikely passage of scripture in the old testament and once again use it to illustrate this first point concerning the fact that the basis of fellowship is our salvation now, don't turn to it, but let me give you a quote of the Apostle Paul from Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Paul is in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's recounting Israel's history. And he comes to David in that, pro in that, in that process of explaining Israel's history, and he says this, And when God, or he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king. 
to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall fulfill all of my will. Now that is a paraphrase of 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. But the question before the house this morning, as we look at the passage before us, is simply this. In the light of David's personal life, how in the world could David be a man after God's own heart? How could David be a man after God's own heart in light of the passage that we have before us this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11? Now, you need to understand what's going on here. And let me give you a little hint about understanding 2 Samuel. You'll get more of this in your Old Testament classes. 2 Samuel, like a number of historical books, is not in chronological order. It is arranged topically. So by the time we really get to chapter 11 in the book of 2 Samuel, David is concluding his nation building. There is a real political aspect to the book of 2 Samuel. David has to bring together a divided kingdom. Okay, He then has to, once again, do that by having a united capital, which is Jerusalem. Okay, A capital that everybody can come to. He then has to secure the boundaries of the nation for the first time. And so by the time you get to chapter 11, he's in this final phase of securing the boundaries of the nation and he is facing his last great campaign, which is the Ammonite Wars. Now, you all know where Ammon is, right? But the capital of Jordan today is Ammon. So that's kind of the area where the fighting is taking place. But in this particular case, David does not go out to battle. He leaves, he leaves that task to Joab, his great general. And we have before us then, beginning in chapter 11, and you're very familiar with it, David's great sin. Now let me just say this in passing, and I don't want to dwell on it, but there's a real, a real interesting idea that's, that you can pull out of the first two verses in chapters 1 and 2. And it has to do with the three steps in the process of sin. And I believe they're exactly the same. If you were to go to James chapter 1 and verses 14 to 15, you would find the same process. Let me just point this out to you real, real, real rapidly. Look in verse 2. It says down towards the end of verse 2, and from the rooftop he saw. The first step always in the process of sin is the eyes, is seeing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the process has to continue. The real issue here is always the second step, and you see that in verse, thir in verse 3. Because it tells you where David's mind was, okay? And David sent and inquired. That was the second step. The second step, when he began to dwell on what he had seen on the roof, on Bathsheba, he then inquired, and we can see the process then of sin really beginning to grow. And then lastly in verse 4, as we all know, he yields to temptation. Now, it's really interesting as you see that, and I've thought a lot about this, and so has Dave Maddox, and it's really a topic for a different message but I've come to the conclusion that men mostly struggle. Above, above everything else, men struggle in the sexual area. Okay? You can mark that down. Men's greatest struggle is in the sexual area. That's not true for a woman. 
A woman's greatest struggle is in the area of covetousness and worldly security. Okay? Covetousness and worldly security. And as I said, that's a topic for another time. So I'm going to pass over that. All right? Now, the sin takes place, as we all know, in the beginning of this passage. And what I want you to zero in on is what begins in verse 5, which, is all, which always follows when sin takes place. And that is the cover-up. And we have that in verses 5 to 27. Okay? Adultery turns to murder. Now let me give you, let me give you an idea here that will always help you in dealing with sin. Not dealing with sin always leads to a downward spiral of greater sin. Did you hear that? Not dealing with the sin in your life always leads to a downward spiral and greater sin. Now, in this particular passage, as I said, you know the context and you know the story. It's really interesting to develop Uriah's relationship to David. And that even makes the story, this account, even more heinous even more than the adultery and the murder, what also you have here going on in the cover-up is a violation of Uriah's loyalty to David. Now, Uriah, although he was a Hittite, was a worshiper of Yahweh. And his name meant, Yahweh is my light. That is what Uriah means. Yahweh is my light. Now, as David tries in his sin to manipulate the situation, he attempts then to do a number of things in order to cover up the sin. And so he has Uriah, who is one of David's mighty men, come back to Jerusalem from the battle. And David then tries to manipulate Uriah, as you well know, to go down, to go to, to, go to his, home, his own home and spend time with his wife so that, once again, the sin can be covered up. And we see in verse 9 what happens. We see Uriah's loyalty here. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. David continues to push Uriah in that direction. And look what happens, look what happens in verse 12. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also and tomorrow. I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. That is, Uriah got drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. So the plot did not work. The cover-up, as David had designed it, did not work. And young people, let me tell you, that's normally what happens in life. The cover-up usually does not work. Now, as David becomes more frustrated, he then goes to the ultimate cure for what he thinks is his problem, the ultimate cure. And that's in verses 14 to 17. And in those three verses, we have the account. Now, just think of the irony of this. You've got to put yourself in what's going on here. Here is this loyal servant of David, this great warrior... David, literally, because he, tr because he knows Uriah would never read something that David gave to him in confidence to Joab, David actually gives Uriah the death orders. And Uriah carries the death orders back to Joab. That is, he brings, really, the document consigning his own death back to Joab. 
That's how far David sinks in the cover-up of this particular sin. But you know, once again, young people, we see the key phrase as is related to all sin. And look at verse 27. And when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house. He's just received word that Uriah is dead. Okay? And she became his wife and bore him a son. Now watch this. That's the outward appearance of what's going on. It looks like, it looks like the plan has worked. Okay? But look at the next sentence. And you underline this, young people. But the thing that David had done displeased who? Displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So once again, David thought he was successful in covering up his sin. But in reality, God knew exactly what was going on. Now this then leads to, to, the, to the third point, and that is this. The, David, the beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 to 31, we see David's sin revealed and judged. And I want to develop this if I can this morning. David's sin revealed and judged. Because there's a lot of really good lessons in here for us. Okay, Those of us who always struggle with sin, we need to know what the consequences are, and also the fact that sin will ultimately be judged. Now look at verses 1 to 4, if you will, of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, now Nathan is going to give a parable, all right? He's going to tell a story here to David. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Now, you can kind of just juxtapose all that and see exactly what's going on there in terms, of, in terms of the reality of the situation. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he was not willing to take of his own flock and of his own herd to prepare it for the wayfaring man who was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who was come to him. Now watch David's response. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man who hath done this thing shall surely die. Now what's fascinating here is, David now has his kingly robes on. And David, like so many of us in life, is able to separate his sin from the reality of the rest of his life. So now he's setting his sin over here. He puts his judge hat on and he comes over here and he gets, he, get, he, he gets angry with righteous indignation. And what he then does is he pronounces a judgment on this individual. And look what he says beginning in verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man who hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Let me stop there. Now what had David really done? David had pronounced a judgment. But watch this. Watch how he's been able to separate this act from his own sin, if you will. Keep your finger here and go back to Leviticus chapter 20. Okay, Leviticus chapter 20. 
And look at verse 10. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Moses says this, And the man who committeth adultery with, another's man, with another man's wife, even he who committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be what? Put to death. Don't stop there. Go over to Leviticus 24. And look at verse 17. It shows you how conveniently David had separated his own actions from uh, his, kingly, his kingly role and his judicial role. Look at verse 17. And he who killeth any man shall surely be put to what? Shall surely be put to death. Now here's the point, folks. In reality, who of the two men was really worthy of death? It was David. The other man simply should have had to do what? Should have had to restore that man's lamb fourfold. But David, in his quote-unquote righteous indignation, pronounces a death penalty on this man, as well as having him restore fourfold. But in reality, what David is doing is David has totally separated once again his own life, his own lifestyle, from the rest of his activity. You know what the problem is, folks? And we do this all the time in life. Our flesh does this to us all the time. So often, when we're dealing with sin in our own lives, we lack proportion. We lack proportion. We tend to overlook the things in our life. We tend to overlook those things that need to be confessed and dealt with in our own life, and yet we come down extremely hard on others of our brothers and sisters whom we see falling into sin. And simply, all that is, as was true in David, is a lack of proportion. He didn't see things clearly because of his sin. Now let's go on. I love the next verse. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. David goes on to say, or Nathan goes on to say more in verse 9. Watch this. And once again, young people, we're going to get at the heart of the sin. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Joab because he made Joab an accomplice to this. But look at the real sin. Look at verse 9. And this is what I want you to really see in your own personal lives. This is the lifetime struggle that we continually have as believers. We need to understand who we really sin against. Look at verse 9. Why hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Young people, that is the underlying sin. The underlying sin in David's life was his utter contempt for the Word of God. His utter contempt for what God had told him in the Word, in the Pentateuch, that should govern his life. That's the real issue. I was looking up a quote this morning because I think it really applies here. In Shakespeare's play, As You Like It, and these words will be very familiar to you, you have these words. All the world's a stage, and the men and women are merely players. All the world's a stage, and the men and women are really players. I've heard people say, gee, where's that found in the Bible? The issue is this, though. It goes beyond that. Let me tell you what it is. 
what you and I need to do in our own personal lives. It is true that we are on a stage. We are on a stage every single day, every single moment of our lives. But in reality, we play to an audience of one. You hear me? We play to an audience of one. And who is the one? It is God Himself. That's true in every aspect of life. In my studies, I study to the glory of God. I'm playing to an audience of one. When I'm competing on the athletic field, I'm really playing to an audience of one. Okay? That is the reality, that is the real reality of life. That we play to an audience of one. So David's underlying sin then was contempt for God Himself. Now let's look at the judgment real rapidly. And we see here God's justice. Look at verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. That's S-U-N, okay? What's ever going to happen to David's concubines, God says, it's going to happen in broad daylight in front of the whole nation. Okay? He then, go, he then goes on in verse 12. For thou didst in secretly, but I, will do, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Look at verse 10. Back up one verse. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me. Once again, who did God despise? Or who did David despise? His actions was a despising of none other than God Himself, and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. So what's God's judgment here, gang? Let me go through it real rapidly. That David's own family would rise against him. That David's wives would be violated by another. Now, did that all take place? It sure did. These predictions of judgment were fulfilled, number one, in the violation of Tamar by, by Ammon in chapter 13, by the violent death because of the vengeance of Absalom of Ammon, and also then Absalom being slain by Joab, and also when, when Absalom went into rebellion and, and, and for a short time took the throne from his father David, what did he do? David had left some of his concubines in Jerusalem, and the idea of doing that simply meant that while David was leaving, he was not giving up the throne. But what did Absalom do? And this was a very common thing in Near Eastern, in Near Eastern societies. To prove that he was now the king, he went in and had, in broad daylight, had sexual relationships with David's concubines to prove to the nation that he was king. And so therefore, every, every judgment that God gave was totally fulfilled in David's latter life. Now, you can imagine if you're David, you're sitting here on your throne, and Absalom takes that old bony finger of his and points it right in David's face and says, David, you are the man. Now listen to me, folks. What I'm going to tell you next is abs can be one of the greatest things in your own assurance of your salvation. And relates back to what Dr. MacArthur said last Monday, that the basis of fellowship is your salvation. I'll tell you right now. Your response to confronted sin and confronted sin in your life is one of the greatest points, one of the greatest uh, can be one of the greatest sources of strength for you 
in knowing for sure that you are a child of God. And let me illustrate this if I might. And let me do it real briefly with two people. Turn back to 1 Samuel 13. Keep your finger here in 2 Samuel, but go back to 1 Samuel 13. And I want to illustrate to you how Saul dealt with the same kind of confrontation from Samuel. And then how David dealt with the confrontation from, from Nathan. And here you will see as clearly as I could ever show you the difference between an unregenerate man and a regenerate man. It has to do with how you respond to sin. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verses 10 to 13. Now, what has happened here is simply this. Saul has gotten real impatient. He's getting ready to go into battle. Samuel is supposed to come up and meet him at Gilgal, but Samuel is late. Now, look what happens in verse 10. I'm sorry, look at verse 9. And Saul said, Bring here a burnt offering to me, and peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had ceased offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might bless him. And Samuel... Now, once again, you see the ulterior motive here? Why did, why did Saul go out? Saul went out because he wanted a blessing from Samuel to make sure that he could win the next battle. Now, look what happens. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Now, what had Saul done? Saul had violated the priestly office. Saul had taken off his crown and put on his priestly ephod, if you will, under, uh, undergarment, white garment, and gone in and sacrificed. He had violated the priestly office. Now, here's what I want you to see. Now he's confronted by Samuel. Now watch this response. And Samuel said, But what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Who does Samuel or who does Saul blame when confronted with his sin? He blames the people. He blames Samuel, and he blames the Philistines. Let me give you another example. Go to chapter 15. And here we have the example of when he was supposed to, when he was supposed to slay uh, the, entire, the entire nation of the Amalekites and bring back absolutely nothing. No, no, no horses, no cattle, no nothing, no people. And what he does is he brings back the best of the, of, of, of the animals, and he also brings back King Agag who he was supposed to kill. And once again, look at his response. And I want to point this out to you. Look at his response in verse 24. And you can read this whole chapter and get the same idea. Okay, look at verse, 20, uh, look at verse uh, 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, now watch this. This sounds good in the beginning. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because... I what? I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See what's going on here? Saul is painting himself as a victim. And I don't have to tell you that the victim mentality reigns in 20th century America. Every one of us is a victim of something. You know, we're a victim. 
And, and you, you know, most counseling starts like this today. Well, now, my dear, tell me about your father. How did he treat you when you were growing up? I don't care what psychological show you listen to on the radio. That's questioning all the time. And the issue simply is, is to once again put you in a frame of mind of being a victim. And I'll tell you, that, that can absolutely devastate you here in this college. If you take a victim mentality that what, that what is happening to you at this college, no matter whether it's academically or relationally, is somebody else's fault, I pity you. Because you're never going to be able to grow in God's grace and you're never going to be able to become the man or woman that God wants you to be. Saul is a victim. Now look at David's response. Go to Psalm 51. Okay, go to Psalm 51. I want to show you something. Dr. MacArthur talked about this as well last Monday. Look at David's response. Okay? Psalm 51. Look at verse 4, folks. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, and that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Now, folks, Dr. MacArthur has talked about this before, but you need to underline that verse. You need to understand that... Confession, if you're a believer, not only restores your joy, which you've lost, as David says over here in verse 12, but you know what else it does? It vindicates God's holiness and His justice and His righteousness. Because when you're confessing your sin to Him, you're saying, God, You are holy, You are righteous, You are just, and I'm a sinner. That's exactly what David says here. So he's, he's also vindicating here the character of God. Do you read any kind of victimization in this whole chapter? Absolutely zero. That's the difference. You see, that really tells me that in spite of David's heinous sin, he was truly saved. That he truly was a called one of God. Because it had to do with how he dealt with his sin. And what tells me that Saul was really not called of God was the way in which once again Saul dealt with his sin. Just two totally different ways. Couldn't be more clearer. Now, God's response real quick. Tells David back in 2 Samuel that the child had to die. It's really interesting why, and you can study this in verse 14. The reason the child died was God had to send a message about His justice to the surrounding nations. They'd all known what had transpired. And God says the child has to die in order to vindicate my reputation and my righteousness among the nations. And many times, young people, you need to understand that when you suffer consequences for your sin, one of the reasons for that consequence is to show other believers and other non-believers, once again, about God's character. Now, let me give you some lessons here and we'll be through. I'll draw these out real rapidly. Number one, the need for accountability in your life. Where would David have been without Nathan? Do we have any idea when or where David would have ever confessed his sin if Nathan hadn't have brought him up short? That's a wonderful, wonderful relationship that we can have with our brothers and sisters. But let me, let me hasten to tell you this. You need to understand that Nathan was David's friend. You need to understand this, folks, and because I'll tell you what, you've got to be careful 
You got to be careful about accountability. Accountability best functions when the people involved have strong personal relationships. You hear me? Accountability is best served when the people involved have strong personal relationships. Why? Because in real accountability, there's an element of trust. The person that's being held accountable needs to to, to have the confidence that in being confronted by you, that you're really confronting that person because because of deep, deep love and commitment to that individual. It's not to get brownie points. It's not to elevate you as the confronter. It's to bring that person back to a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And that must be established based on trust. Okay, nothing is worse. There is nothing worse in the Christian community than for somebody to come and pour their heart out to some individual and then two days later find out the whole campus knows about it. All that does is totally shuts down any kind of reconciliation. Okay? That's crucial. Okay? The need for accountability. Secondly, and hear this, while sin is forgiven, the marks are in the flesh. You need to understand that, folks. While sin is forgiven, the marks are in the flesh. The pastor that I grew up under was John's dad, Dr. Jack MacArthur. He used to use this illustration in, in, in talking about confessed sin. He said it was like a two-by-four that had, had nails driven into it. And when you pull the nails out of the two-by-four, what are left? The holes, the scars, if you will. Okay, and the point simply is this. You can live, you can live a life of debauchery. And God in His graciousness can save you from that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that in the flesh you're going to escape what? The results of the kind of life you've lived. You need to understand that. But let me say this. Let me hasten to say this. There are scars. Okay? There are scars to sin. Even when sin has been forgiven. Broken relationships failed health, all kinds of scars. But let me say this. You can look at a scar in two ways. You can look at a scar and recall all the pain. Or you can look at the scar and see the healing. You hear me? You can look at the scar and recall all the pain. Or you can look at the scar and see the healing. I've seen people that are so proud of their triple bypass. They go, look at this! You know? Well, what are they proud about? They're, they're showing you that scar. That surgery was incredible. You know, they were under the knife for five hours. And you know what they do now when you have a bypass? They get you up and walking within 24 hours. And you can hardly stand the pain. Okay? You're, you know, just, just walking up and down the halls. They release you now after about two days. You're home. Ask Professor Law. He had that surgery two years ago. But when a person shows you that scar, what does he remember? What's he thinking about? He's thinking about the fact that he's a whole person again. That he can walk, that he can run, that he can participate in life. And that's precisely what a scar should do for you, young people. Even if you've committed some of the heinous sin, God can forgive you. And when you look back at that, even though there are marks in your life, you can thank God for it. And thank Him for the healing. Thirdly, 
The need to be careful about judging a person's salvation because they fall into sin. Oh man, that's a terror. That is so common. Let me ask you this. If, if you just had those two chapters of David's life to look at, and you had to vote in a booth about whether David was saved or damned, how would you vote? See, what you don't have before you is the entire context of his life. The part of his life when he wrote the Psalms. The part of his life when he built the temple. The part of his life when the Davidic covenant was given to him. You don't have any of that. And you need to understand this, young people, that when we talk about progressive sanctification, John talked about this, Christ-likeness. If you, were to, if, you were to have, if you were to have a point here when you were saved and a point of Christ's likeness, you, would, you could draw a linear, a, a straight line to that point. But is your progress going to be like that? Your progress is going to be probably like this if you're really saved. You know, it's going to be jagged. There are going to be down times in your life. But at the end of your life, you take a pencil and you draw from one point to the other what direction you're going in. You're moving towards Christ's likeness. And that ought to be a tremendous help to you to understand that even when you fall into sin, the issue is to deal with that sin immediately so that you can begin once again to get back on that path of Christ's likeness. Dr. MacArthur said again last Monday, you know, if, if you have turbulence in the air, you don't fall out of what? You don't fall out of the plane. You get bumped around and everything, but you don't fall out of the plane. Okay? Fourthly, the innocent are hurt. Oh, I wish you could just get a hold of that. When you commit sin, the innocent are hurt. What about Tamar? Okay? What about poor Tamar in this whole thing? What about Uriah? And so often we think that when we commit sin, it only affects ourselves. Even our personal sin, but that's not true. It's like when you throw a pebble in the water, what happens to it? It just keeps going out and out and out and out. So you need to be careful about that as well. Okay? The innocent are hurt when you sin. Fifthly, Galatians 6-7. You need to understand, folks, there's a law built into the universe it's as true as, as I am standing here this morning. It is the sowing and reaping principle. It works, it works, it works, it works. It never fails. It always happens. It happens for the just. It happens for the unjust. What you sow, you will what? You will eventually reap, either in the short term or in the long term. That is built into the nature of the universe. Time is gone. Three things real quickly. Why then do I say that David was a man after God's own heart? Don't turn to it. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. God says to David, David, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. How do we know David was chosen? Because he genuinely repented of his sin. And thirdly, how do we know David was chosen? Because in chapter 7, verses 22, 26, 28, 29, all of the Psalms, we see that David had a heart to honor God. So Paul could say, in spite of David's sin, in spite of our sin, David was a man after God's own heart. And the way we know that is because David dealt forthrightly with his sin when he was confronted. David, why don't you come and lead us in prayer? Let's stand and...